The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines. The Dow turns negative for the year as hot jobs data fuels speculation. The Fed will keep rates higher for longer, while the 10-year yield hits its highest level since August 2007. Negative sentiment spills into Asia, sending major equity markets into the red, with Japan's Nikkei dropping to a four-month low. U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy sacked, putting the gavel up for grabs as he becomes the first lawmaker in history to to be removed from the post. I took a risk for the American public. Regardless what anybody says, no one knew whether that would pass, but it was all for the American people. I could not look the troops in the eye and say I would not pay them. Novartis set to officially spin off its generic drug division Sandoz today in a move the Swiss pharma giant CEO says will allow the firm to focus on its core business. We'll speak What's with- left now is really where I think Novartis is best suited to succeed in the long run. A pure play, innovative medicines company focused on bringing our R&D uh, efforts and, and the new medicines we create to markets around the world. We'll speak with the CEO of Sandoz shortly. That's a first on CNBC interview coming your way at 7.30 CET. Very warm welcome to the program, everybody. You are watching Squawk Box. Arabile and I will be taking you through all the market action today, filling in for Steve and Karen. Let's kick off the show with a look at U.S. markets. It was another challenging day on Wall Street. As you can see, all three of the majors stateside ended sharply lower. More concerns around the impact of higher for longer from a rates perspective. We got some stronger than expected macro data once again, this time from the Jolts report uh, showing job openings unexpectedly rising in August. Um, Here is a picture of where things ended. The tech-heavy Nasdaq dropped 1.9%. The S&P 500 dropped about 1.4%. And the Dow posted its worst daily performance since March, falling 1.3% or about 430 points. So negative across the board. 10 out of 11 sectors were negative in the session, led to the downside by consumer discretionary, which pulled back 2.6%. Utilities uh, argue the most defensive basket of stocks in the market held up best, gaining about 1.2% on the day as investors clearly sought safety in a risk-off session. Now, in terms of volatility, we also saw a spike in the VIX. It briefly topped the 20 level, uh, closing at a six-month high. Uh, Right now, we are around 1978. So volatility uh, front and center yesterday in the trading session. Bond markets also had a challenging day. Once again, the sell-off in bonds continued. And here's where we stand right now. You've got the 30-year U.S. Treasury yield hitting a 16-year high. 10-year U.S. Treasury yields hitting their highest level since August 2007. The levels we're talking about, the 10-year, closing above 4.8%, 4.835% to be exact. And there's the 30-year trading just under 5%. In FX markets, uh, the dollar climbed, uh, no surprise there, I suppose, to a 10-month high yesterday. Uh, Here's where we stand today. The dollar is trading on the back foot 
ever so slightly versus sterling and the euro sterling around 120.81. Plenty in focus from the UK perspective with the uh, the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak due to uh, deliver his keynote address to the Conservative Party conference in Manchester later today. Uh, euro, meanwhile, holding steady now versus the greenback 104.66. It's also traveled quite a ways lower in recent trade. Dollar, meanwhile, is holding firm versus the yen, but we did see a lot of action in the yen overnight. Uh, we saw it briefly breach the 150 per dollar level before shooting back to 147. No confirmation of intervention from uh, policymakers, but lots of speculation that we did see, uh, we did actually see interve- intervention affect the dollar yen trade there. So something we'll talk more about later in the show. Uh, as for Asian markets more broadly in an, an equity, uh, in terms of equities, this is the picture. Uh, mainland Chinese markets still closed for a holiday, but the uh, South Korean market has reopened. The Kospi trading at more than 2% lower overnight, so underperforming. Nikkei 225 also suffering losses down about 1.8%. Hang Seng in Hong Kong pulling back about 1%. So that weak spillover from Wall Street and chaos on Capitol Hill, as we mentioned, the headlines seems to be weighing on sentiment there. Finally, U.S. futures. It is early, of course, but here's a look for you at where things stand right now. It looks as though the losses will continue. You've got all three of the majors pointing to a weaker start to trade today. The Dow looking to drop about 66 points. The Nasdaq about 30 points. So fairly contained in terms of the magnitude, but the direction of travel is still south. Thanks for that then, Juliana. Well, job openings, as you've been mentioning, across the United States unexpectedly rose to 9.6 million in August, blowing past forecasts and snapping three straight months of declines. Now, the robust JOLTS print does come amid the Fed's best efforts to slow the economy and even sparked concerns of further rate hikes from the FOMC at its meeting next month. Now, Friday's non-farm uh, payrolls report is the next key data point. The Dow Jones is forecasting a rise of 170,000. That's down from last month's 187,000. Now, the recent spat of mixed messaging from the Fed continued, even on Tuesday, with two key officials offering diverging views of the U.S. economy. Atlanta Fed President Rafael Bostic appeared to stick to the Fed's higher-for-longer strategy, arguing that keeping rates on hold was the appropriate thing to do for a long time. Meanwhile, Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester claimed she would support another rate hike in November if the economy continues in its current manner. Both Bostic and Mester are non-voting members, however, of the FOMC this year. Now, Stephen Schoenfeld is the CEO of Market Vector Indices and joins us now in studio. Stephen, thank you so much for the time. I suppose I was wondering, where do I start? Do I start on whether you were surprised by yesterday's negative movements all across? Or, you know, do we go to a sense of is higher for longer still the right narrative or is it higher until something breaks, which could also be a narrative? Start where you will. So those are all great questions. Um, Clearly, the trend in equities is down. Um, The small caps have already broken key support, which is very concerning. U.S. large cap have been relative strength, but they're also beginning to show signs of weakness. And global markets, as we've seen overnight and and this morning, not looking great either. Um, The surge of interest rates has been so sharp And now there's the concern about actually funding the U.S. deficit. The U.S. has to roll over the debt. So you do have a little bit of a cycle of fear. However, I think it's beginning to get overblown. I'm not going to say we're bottoming today or tomorrow. But I think by the middle of the month, we will have some calm. And uh, since it's early in the quarter, I'll boldly predict that we will be 
higher at the end of the quarter, at the end of the year. So we're continuing the correction, though, of August and September, yeah. seemingly into most of October, it feels. Or I mean, we've only just started, fair enough. But would you say for most of October, we could get that, that sense as well? A lot depends. The, 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 equity, the U.S. equity market has been hit with a lot of bad news, political yeah. news. Uh, McCarthy's historic ouster as speaker is just people just don't fully understand it. Mm -hmm. But the fact is there will be another speaker. So uh, cyclically, historically, October usually starts pretty scary. And even though Halloween is at the end of the month, <laughs> it tends to be a brighter time. Well, let's talk about that news out in the last 24 hours, the ousting yeah. of McCarthy. Um, this is one of the headline stories, of course, gaining so much attention, a historic move to see the House Speaker removed. And it really comes at such a tumultuous time for Congress. They just agreed this short-term funding bill, which expires at the end of November. Um, I mean, clearly this was already a difficult thing for markets to digest. What does it mean from a market perspective to have no House Speaker and no, no a sign of who's to replace him and when? So ironically, uh, McCarthy lost his seat uh, because of the way he got his seat. He, he set up a very fragile structure yeah. and uh, it only required a few hotheads to get rid of him. But he lost it because he actually got the budget extended. So he, he did the right thing mm. and then got the wrong thing happening to him. Um, even the most seasoned wa uh, Washington veterans don't know exactly how it will play out. This truly is the first time ever. But there will be an interim House Speaker. Um, the key issue is certain budget issues. Before we get to November, uh, the extra funding for Ukraine is now more under question, too. Mm -hmm. So the Democrats have decided, well, let the Republicans live in the House that they built. It will be chaotic. Um, I think the markets will absorb it reasonably well. So from a bond market perspective, this is not, even though the, the short-term funding bill will run out mid-November, mid I said end of November, but it's actually mid-November, um, it's not going to be disruptive from a, a bond market perspective. Not in the short term. I think the bigger bond issue is just the Fed has to issue more and at a higher rate. They're rolling over debt that was funded at much lower rates, and the bond vigilantes know this and see this. Yeah, Stephen, what about, I, I wanted to unpack just uh, uh, something that I found very interesting. Uh, Jeffrey Gundlach, actually, uh, Double Line Capital CEO, yesterday saying that um, the yield curve is basically inverting opposite way or disinverting, if you want to put yeah. it that way, very rapidly. It was 108 a couple of months ago, now at negative 35, effectively. Are you on recession warning here or, or more on recession watch, as he puts it? So um, the yield curve started inverting several weeks ago. Uh, you definitely, just like with a hurricane, you, you put yourself on watch. Yeah. But there's other things that are showing real strength in the U.S. market. The JOLTS report yesterday yeah. shows strength in the market. And um, the short answer is... Historically, these are signs of a recession. Uh, the way the utilities have behaved, the way some of uh, trucking stocks and trucking indicators, mm -hmm. signs of a recession. But the Fed hasn't stopped tightening yet. If it pauses or starts easing, that could change the narrative very quickly. Do you think a soft landing is still possible? I do, because um, we are entering the last quarter before an election year. Historically, when the incumbent is in power, you know, they do things to support the economy. Uh, cyclically, um, the year started strong. We had a healthy correction. Yeah. Will it end in a week or two? I don't know. But I, I do believe uh, 
the market will end the year higher. Mm. And in terms of other market moves, we've seen the U.S. dollar hitting a 10-month high yesterday. Mm-hmm. It's been climbing. Uh, what impact is that going to have on you know other asset classes? So the strong dollar affects equities worldwide. It especially affects emerging markets, some more positively than others. Um, but it makes imports more expensive for emerging markets. It helps uh, the energy producers because they're getting more dollars, more money for their oil. Um, the dollar rally has, just like the uh, rise in rates, has been so strong that I feel it's going to pause soon. Well, I know you've got plenty of views on emerging markets. I'm yeah. afraid that's all we have time for today, but hopefully that's you'll okay. come back and join us. We can talk through those. Uh, Stephen Schoenfeld, the CEO of Market Vector. Now, on to the big news overnight that we just uh, we, we just scratched the surface uh, in our conversation, our opening conversation. That is the U.S. House of Representatives ousting Republican Kevin McCarthy as Speaker. This is the first time in history that the chamber has dethroned its leader in a no-confidence vote. The vote was triggered by Matt Gates, who formally launched the process on Monday evening, saying he no longer represented the interests of Republicans after working with the Democrats to pass a stopgap funding bill to avoid a government shutdown. Eight hardline conservative Republicans joined Democrats to approve a motion to vacate. Patrick McHenry of North Carolina assumed the role of speaker uh, temporarily. The former speaker told reporters he would not be running for the position again after losing by 216 votes to 210. You need 218. Unfortunately, 4% of our conference can join all the Democrats and dictate who can be the Republican speaker in this House. I don't think that rule is good for the institution, but apparently I'm the only one. I believe I can continue to fight, maybe in a different manner. I will not run for speaker again. I'll have the conference pick somebody else. Well, certainly a historic uh, development, as we were just discussing with Stephen Arabile. And I think the from a market perspective, you know, Stephen's view, it's not going to be massively impactful for markets short term. Yeah. But clearly from a, a legislative perspective, this is incredibly disruptive because the key takeaway here is it grinds legislative uh, dealings to a halt. They cannot pass a legislative business without a speaker in place. And it doesn't seem like there's a clear path or a, a, a clear understanding of who will actually succeed. McCarthy. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because there was actually, if you had watched the proceedings actually yesterday, you would have heard one of the uh, one identified sort of a Republican member there actually even shout out, "What next?" And that really is the whole point here. So you've ousted uh, Kevin McCarthy. What happens next? You can't vote for a new speaker until next week. And yes, you may have an interim uh, um, speaker, but that's really just to preside over the next vote mm. for House Speaker, right? So you can't even pass uh, a- any law. So it's a real uphill battle. And in a time when Republicans are also just trying to find their right leader if Donald Trump happens to be or doesn't happen to be that leader, does that really give them a firmer footing in, in, in the race? And I think they, they probably have to try and sort this one out very quickly. As you said, short-term, market-wise, probably not, not too much of an effect. But overall, this could hurt. Well, to your point about looking ahead to the presidential election, I think it's a yeah. good one. Because ultimately, the reason that McCarthy was ousted was because he brokered this deal this bipartisan Very vote. A fragile deal, right? A, a fragile deal, but he, he, he managed to cross the line yeah. and, and, and get attempts. this. <laughs> not, not to get the role as House Speaker, but 
to get this deal done over the weekend, oh, yeah. last weekend, yeah. to stop this uh, short-term funding bill. He essentially was ousted from his position because he worked with the Democrats and got this bipartisan vote across the line. So in terms of what this means and signals to Republicans ahead of the president, presidential election, it's certainly got to be a bit of a warning shot to those Republicans oh, yeah. who do look to take a more pragmatic stance. He says, you know, I stand by the decision to get this deal across the line. It was the right decision. It was the right decision for our country, for our troops. But ultimately, he lost his job as a result of it. So any Republican that's out there looking to take a soft line with the Democrats in the uh, in the race is probably uh, second-guessing that And it's now. the same Democrats then that also helped to kind of vote him out in the same instance, right? So you worked with them and still then they decided, well, we're not going to help you either. Yeah. It was just uh, very ironic, I suppose, in this case. But as we said, a lot still needs to come forward with regards to that one. And we'll see. Maybe next week we get a new speaker if it does happen. Coming up on the show, we'll cross live to Adapak in Abu Dhabi as energy executives and policymakers continue to debate the path to net zero. Plus, Sandoz prepares for its first day of trade as its long-awaited spin-off from Novartis is completed. We'll speak to CEO Richard Sainer at 7.30 CET. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Welcome back to Squawk Box. Let's quickly check in just very shortly before we head out to the Middle East then with regards to the oil price. This has been fairly interesting. We thought we'd touch $100 a barrel at some stage, uh, according to the people we had, of course, even spoken to. But that hasn't happened. In fact, whether it's both WTI or Brent crude, Brent crude just above that $90 a barrel mark, then uh, slipping off just a little bit then today. Yesterday, we even saw Brent crude hit a low of 89.50. That was its lowest level since September the 8th, so around a three-week low on that one as well. Then WTI also dipping off this morning. Overall, though, energy prices and even the transition to net zero have been front and center at this year's ADIPAC Forum. Dan joining us then from Abu Dhabi with a special guest. Dan, I hand it over to you. Arivale, thanks so much. And it is day three of our coverage of ADIPAC live from Abu Dhabi. And yes, so much of the focus here on the ground has been what's happening in the oil and broader energy markets. But of course, right now, the topic of conversation is also decarbonization. You know, a few years ago, this conference was a pure play oil and gas event. Now, the focus is on the energy transition and finding a sustainable solution for our energy future. So let's speak to a solutions provider and continue the conversation on the ground here. Very pleased to say that Antonio Pietri joins me now. He's the CEO of Aspen Tech. Antonio, great to have you on today. Thanks for being here. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Now, we were talking off air about the performance of the stock, holding up all things considered, given the malaise that we saw on Wall Street overnight. But I wanted to begin our conversation by asking you about the financial performance of the business. How has it evolved over the last year? Yeah, no, thank you. Well, look, uh, to us, uh, the last uh, 12 to 18 months have really been focused on, on the uh, 
integrating the two businesses that Emerson contributed to Aspentech after a transaction with Emerson. Emerson now being the biggest shareholder in Aspen Technology. Uh, we built the foundation for what we believe is going to go forward, but in that context, we also had a strong performance. We generated double-digit growth and a, uh, a strong cash flow. So we're very happy with our performance. So walk me through your position in the market today and how are you competing across this region in particular? Yeah, so historically Aspentech has is, is been about innovation first and we continue to be an innovation-driven company. The use of our technologies to drive efficiencies and sustainability. Uh, of course, uh, our biggest markets are North America and, and Europe, but as uh, certainly the oil and gas industry, one where we are a key player in the supply of technology, has shifted more and more towards the Middle East. The Middle East has become a bigger market for us, a more important market. And of course, as companies have announced uh, their net zero carbon emissions, then uh, customers have started to ask us, how can we continue to help them by leveraging the technologies that they've used to drive profitability in their operations towards sustainability? Indeed, and as I said, decarbonization is a major agenda, uh, agenda item this year. Uh, what are the problems that Aspen Tech can solve with the solutions and the technology that you provide? How can you tilt the register for these businesses and ultimately advance the energy transition? Yeah. So, so look, uh, as I said, historically it's been about driving efficiencies, operational excellence, so improving the performance of, of these customers. Uh, and then over the last two, three years, that same technology that's been used to drive those efficiencies can drive sustainability. So uh, while you improve, you reduce your energy consumption to produce the same unit of output, that makes you more profitable, but also you produce less CO2 emissions. Mm -hmm. So in the refining industry, oil refining, we estimate that our customers create about $22 billion per year in value through the use of our technologies, but they, they also produce uh, 60 million metric tons less per year through the use of the technology. So it's a, it's a dual combination of profitability and sustainability that makes us so relevant to our customers. Indeed, and we're talking about software in particular, but beyond that, what about future technologies, IoT, blockchain for yeah. example even the buzzword AI right yeah how are these solutions ultimately going to um, help this pivot in the energy space and are you working with any of these technologies yeah no that's a great question look uh, uh, but in 2015 we started to do research around artificial intelligence our technologies are based on first principles of engineering the physics the chemistry the math that sort of ruled the world uh, but then we started to research how can we integrate artificial intelligence capabilities into these first principles capabilities because we believe and our customers have actually agreed with us that the deployment of AI in these very complex and dangerous to operate assets uh, requires first principles to provide the, the rules of the road, the guardrails for AI. Mm -hmm. So today we're deploying hybrid models, models that are based on first principles enhanced by AI capabilities. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing we're doing quite well. Then we're also then looking at what else? Chat GPT, of course, everyone is talking about that. But then, you know, for us, uh, we believe that uh, a technology that is out there, that people talk about quantum computing, for example, will be quite disruptive once it, it becomes commercially available at scale. So we're keeping an eye on, on quantum computing and because it will revolutionize how quickly we can solve very complex problems in, in these industries, including the research of uh, new molecules in ph for pharmaceuticals, for medicine, new 
products uh, for chemistry, for especially circularity around new plastics as well. So, so quantum computing is also something that we're paying a lot of attention to. Indeed. Um, Antonio, just taking a step back, let's get real about the transition because 80% of the global energy mix is still totally dependent on fossil fuels. We've only got about seven years to really move the needle before <laughs> some of these 2030 yeah. targets. It's pretty unrealistic that we're going to get there, right? Mm -hmm. Would you agree? I think I think it'll be a challenge uh, if we look at at the pace of uh, scaling that is required for uh, hydrogen, for biofuels, electrical vehicles. Uh, you, you do see that it will take some time to scale these technologies. This is why our focus is around driving efficiencies for our customers. You know, the International Energy Agency estimates that 40% of the emission reductions that are required to get to net zero carbon emissions have to come from efficiencies. Driving efficiencies in these very asset intensive industries. So we're focused on that. At the same time, we're helping our customers scale these new technologies through the understanding how they need to be designed, carbon capture and sequestration systems, hydrogen systems, the incorporation of these, uh, of these technologies in, in, in their own operations. Uh, but it will take time. So through 2030, a lot of efficiencies uh, beyond that scaling CCS, hydrogen, biofuels. And then you start talking about new technologies into the 2040s. But it will be, it will be a challenge and, and, and speed is of the essence, but uh, scaling will take, will take some time. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.